Good morning, good morning. Welcome, welcome. It's good to be with you guys. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison. Uh, We are very, very glad that you're here. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 33, continuing in our sermon series on the family. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a white paperback Bible at the edge of each bench. You can grab that. You can open up to page 569. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. We'd love for you to take that home, make it your own, write in it, and and learn from it, and and consume it. It'll be our encouragement to you, our gift to you. Uh, If you would, take a moment. There's a Connect card uh, attached to the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. Um, and that's just a, a good way. It's on the back. It's a little perforated uh, piece of paper on the, on the bulletin. If you would, just take a moment, fill that out. That's just a good way for us to get to know some information about you and uh, know how we can get in contact with you and uh, know how to get you connected with what God is up to in our church family here at Veritas. We, we'd love to learn more about you. And particularly on that Connect card, there's a little space for prayer requests. And we'd, we'd love to be able to pray for you this week. And so if you would, just take a few moments, jot down a few things that we can be praying praying for uh, on that Connect card. We'd, we'd count it an honor and a joy to be able to pray for you this week. All right, let's dig into Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, and let's listen with reverence and joy, for these are the words of our Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, there's uh, no doubt that some of the things called for in this text are controversial, and um, because of that, we, we need you this morning. Um, would you help me to be um, gentle but clear and bold? Would you uh, help all of us to submit to, to come under your word, your authority, what you are commanding us to do here? Uh, would you help us to, to see... Um, that the roles that we're called to here as husbands and wives is, is, uh, is really a, a good news ethics for the family. Um, 
Would you help us ultimately to see Jesus in all this, to see the gospel of grace, to see our union with Christ? Would you make Jesus and his person and his work clear this morning to us? And would you transform our hearts so that we, we don't submit to him begrudgingly or or uh, without understanding what, what's taking place here, but that we would submit to him with joy and reverence and delight in who he is. Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our Lord, you are our rock, you are our redeemer. And so we thank you. We thank you for being present to us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, So Martin Luther once said that the cross alone is our theology. The cross alone is our theology. Um, And and now what he meant by that is that the person and work of Jesus is what's at the center of of what we believe and the way that we think as Christians. Um, and, and, if, and wouldn't this have to be true? If, if Jesus is who he said he is and he really accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish, if, if it's all true, then what took place on that bloody cross and, and in that empty tomb changes everything for us for the way that we think. It changes the way we think about God. It, we naturally like to think that, that God is like us, just bigger. But if the person and work of Jesus is what's at the center of how we think about God, then then what kind of God is this? He, he's, certainly, uh, not, he's, he's certainly not the kind of God that would uh, be conjured up in our imaginations. This is a God who uh, has dwelled in perfection and pleasure for all of eternity past, but, but put on flesh and came down to be treated shamefully. He was persecuted and cursed and bloodied and beaten and, 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 and murdered. And he did that so that we could be reconciled to him and enjoy the pleasure of being in a loving and eternal union with him. The cross changes everything for the way that we think about God. But not only the way we think about God, it also changes the way we think about ourselves. If you look at yourself through the lens of the cross, you begin to see yourself more accurately. You, you begin to see yourself the way that God sees you. Uh, You, of course, see what would make such a horrific and bloody sacrifice necessary. You see that you're sinful and depraved and rebellious, that you are treasonous against the King and God who created you for His glory, that you deserve what you deserve from Him is wrath and anger and punishment. But you also see, on the other hand, even though that's all painfully true, that you're also infinitely and dearly and sweetly loved by this God. And so much so that he would come down and be hung on that bloody cross, on that bloody tree, so that you would be forgiven and freed from the wretched disease of sin and to be reconciled to him. You see, the cross changes the way we think about God. The cross changes the way we think about ourselves. But still, it goes beyond that. It changes the way we think about everything. It changes the way that we think about church. It changes the way that we think about work. It changes the way that we think about our neighborhoods and city. It changes the way that we think about politics and governing authorities. It changes the way that we think about our bodies and our souls and suffering and and everything. And what we'll see this morning is that the person and work of Jesus also changes the way that we think about marriage, changes the way that we think about marriage. As we come to this topic of marriage in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 in our series about the family, we'll see that we're not to look at our marriage 
that not to look at marriage apart from these gospel lenses that Luther calls us to have when he says that the cross alone is our theology. The person and the work of Jesus even changes and shapes and forms the way that we think about the home. It changes and and shapes and forms the way that we think about marriage, about leadership in the home, about submission in the home. The cross changes the way that we think about wives and husbands and their respective roles in marriage. And that's what we want to unpack here this morning. Paul sets forth a compelling vision for marriage in Ephesians 5, 22-33, a vision wherein marriage finds its purpose, its mission, its hope, its shape in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage, as we see in this text, is a living parable of the gospel as a union between a, a wife and a husband in the roles that they're called to fulfill. And so that's the kind of big idea uh, for this morning, and it's slightly different than the big idea that you see in your bulletin. And so I'll say it again for those of you that are note-takers. The, the big idea, the outline, has sort of changed since we printed the bulletin. I apologize about that. So I'll say it again. Marriage is a living parable of the gospel as a union between a wife and a husband and the roles they're called to fulfill. And the kind of outline that we'll be working from this morning is, uh, for point one, you can just put the word union Uh, For point two, you can put the word roles, R-O-L-E-S, roles. And then under point two, you can have two sub points, a word to wives and a word to husbands. And so we'll spend a few moments looking at how marriage is a living parable of the gospel as a union between a wife and a husband, and then also how it's a living parable of the gospel and the roles that these two people are called to fulfill. And we'll unpack some of the implications of that for wives as they fulfill their roles and husbands as they fulfill their roles. Uh, Now, all of verses uh, 22 through 33 are absolutely filled with the claim that marriage is a gospel parable. Uh, But look with me first at at verses 31 to 33, particularly for now. Uh, This is a kind of summary of Paul's argument in the previous nine verses. And he begins by quoting Genesis 2, 24, uh, that we looked at last Sunday together. Uh, But this is what Paul says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so he cites Genesis 2.24, that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He recalls uh, these words often referred to as the institution, the words of the institution of marriage. And he says that this is a profound mystery Because ultimately, the covenant relationship and union of marriage refers to Christ and his covenant relationship with his bride, the church. So don't miss this here. Paul is saying that the institution of marriage is not really about us. It's not really about us. It's not primarily about our fulfillment or satisfaction or happiness in life. It can be those things. But it's primarily, it's not primarily and ultimately why it exists. The covenant relationship of marriage ultimately and primarily exists to be a living parable of the union of Christ and the church. Now, on the one hand, this picture is not a a completely new picture in the scriptures. Throughout the the scriptures in the Old Testament, uh, the relationship between God and his people is routinely and regularly pictured as a relationship between a husband and a wife. In fact, uh, Isaiah goes as far to say in Isaiah 54, 5 to the Israelites, he says, your maker, your creator is your husband. 
Uh, and, and we see in Ezekiel 16 as well, the, the prophet Ezekiel speaks about the Exodus story where Israel, Israel was rescued by God from slavery and oppression. He speaks of it as a husband rescuing and nurturing and marrying an abused and oppressed young woman. The same is true really, the entire book of the Song of Songs. And, th- and there's more. Uh, it's a very common uh, theme in the Old Testament, very common picture in the Old Testament that, that, that we see the relationship between Yahweh and his people. It's pictured as a marriage between a husband and a wife. But on the other hand, there's something new and profound in the way that we see this picture in the New Covenant. When, when Paul says that this mystery is profound and that it refers to Christ in the church, he's saying that marriage has had a, had a, had a deep purpose and a meaning that, that we didn't quite understand until Christ came and died for his bride and united us to himself. That marriage was primarily and originally created by God himself to be a picture of the covenant relationship between Christ and his bride that was to come. The church throughout history has also picked up on this theme as well. Michael Reeves, in his wonderful book, Rejoicing in Christ, he talks uh, about a story that many of the reformers regularly told uh, to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, The story is one in which a a great king representing Jesus comes and and marries a, a girl, a young girl of ill repute representing us. And, And at their wedding, She would say to him, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that moment, he would take all her debt and all her poverty and all her shame, but then he would say, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And at that moment, she would take on all of his riches and power and position, all of his kingdom and his royalty and his wealth would be now hers. And so it is with our great Savior and Bridegroom. He comes and he takes on all of our guilt and shame and death and wrath on the cross, but he shares with us his kingdom and his righteousness and his life. The Reformers called this the great exchange. And that union, that that marriage, that covenant relationship is ultimately what our marriages are supposed to be a parable of. Not in the sense that the man is this wealthy and, and powerful figure and the woman is this weak and impoverished figure, uh, although that's true of the relationship between Christ and the church. But marriage is to be a parable of the greater marriage between Christ and the church in the sense that the union that the husband and, and wife share with one another ultimately reveals something to us of the union between Christ and the church. We see here that in marriage, a husband and a wife become one flesh. They become one flesh. The two become one, so that whatever the one has, the other can boldly claim as their own. When I married Amy, all that I have, all that I am became hers. However small my wealth was, it became hers. My debts became hers. My property became hers, and and vice versa. When we exchanged vows, we became one flesh. We were in a close, intimate union with one another. Uh, I, I love the TV show, The Office. Uh, I know that many of you do as well. Uh, we quote it often around here. Uh, and, and so if you're not familiar with the show, it's um, a comedy about the, what, what goes on in the office of this Scranton, Pennsylvania branch of Dunder Mifflin, of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And the boss of the office, his name is Michael Scott, uh, and he is just incompetent. Uh, he's childish. He's a narcissist who is lonely, doesn't have any friends, uh, and so one of the frequent themes that we see in the show is, 
is that um, he, he is completely delusional in, in his thinking that uh, the employees of this paper company are all one big family of which he is the head and, and father of. And uh, in this one episode, uh, this longtime employee, Phyllis, is getting married. And, uh, and so Michael just like pushes his way into the wedding in really inappropriate times. It's just uh, so painfully awkward when you watch the episode. Uh, he, he gets involved by, by pushing his way into every part of the wedding. He walks down the aisle uh, and then he like pushes his way into standing with the wedding party on the stage uninvited. Uh, and then at the reception afterward, he gets up and uh, after the maid of honor and the, uh, the best man make their speeches, he gets up and steals the mic and wants to make his own speech. And uh, it's just so painful. I literally have rewinded this and watched it several times uh, before because it's so funny. Uh, but he, he gets up, he takes the mic, and he opens a speech with saying, Webster's Dictionary defines a wedding as the fusing of two metals together with a hot torch. <laughs> and, and then he says, you know what, I think you both are metals, gold medals. And then he pauses for, for applause, um, of which there's none. If you don't get it, the implication is that he uh, accidentally looked up the word welding in the dictionary, not the word wedding. Welding is a fusing together of two metals with a hot torch, not a wedding. But one of the things that we see in this text is that this morning is, is that marriage literally is a fusing or a gluing together of two people. When, when a man and a woman are bound together in the covenant of marriage, their lives are being glued together, fused together. They are becoming one flesh. The two, although they keep all of their distinct personality traits and personhood, they are like two halves now that make up a whole. They are one in this mysterious and profound way, and that reveals something to us of the union of Christ and the church. Christian, that, that oneness that we see in a husband and a wife is a living parable or a picture of our relationship with Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ and are filled with his spirit, we are bound to him in this way. We are one flesh with Christ. We are one flesh with him so that all that he is and all that he has, we can boldly claim for our own. His kingdom is ours. His righteousness is ours. His sonship and position before the Father is now ours. His inheritance is ours. So that all that he is, all that he has is ours. Do you get that? It's all ours. And he created and he instituted marriage so that you could look at a wedding, at the exchange of vows, so that you could look at a marriage as two people are united together and be reminded of and taught of your relationship with him. That's why we don't believe that marriage is some peripheral issue that's separated from that which is essential to our faith. This, this is why uh, the gospel is essential to our faith, but, but, but marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is why we're willing to argue for the definition of marriage. This is why we're willing to fight to keep marriages together when they're falling apart because a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that's ultimately the, the mystery is profound. It refers to Christ and the church. Jesus left his heavenly home, left the right hand of his father to come and secure his union, his marriage with his bride, the church, by dying for us and then being raised from the dead. 
And so the mystery of marriage is that when you look at a faithful and loving marriage between a husband and a wife, you are seeing a divinely instituted living parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are seeing a parable of a close and intimate union between Christ and the church. And it's great because it's so profound and significant. But then we also see that marriage is a parable of the gospel in terms of the roles that husband and husbands and wives are called to fulfill in their marriages. Now, as we get into the weeds of, of headship and submission and the roles of, of husband and wife between marriage, I, I simply want to remind us of, of the foundation that we laid last week as we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, as we unpacked that humanity is made in God's image. Uh, we saw last Sunday that, that both men and women are, are, are created in God's image. We saw that both men and women are equal but different. God created humanity, both male and female, in his image. He, both men and women are created in the image of God, are both equal in value and dignity, but men and women are also different. Men and women are not simply these interchangeable things with one another. One of the ways that this plays itself out is in the structure of the home here. In our text this morning, Paul is is coming into a portion of his letter to the church in Ephesus uh, here where he's unpacking the roles of family members in the home and how the home should be ordered. And here in the portion of the letter directed to wives and husbands, to married couples, we see in verses 22 through 24 a word to wives. Uh, And this is rather clear because um, the the first word of the first verse in this section here, starts the, the first word is the word wives. So he's obviously addressing wives. So he addresses wives specifically here. And then we see a word to husbands in verses 25 to 30. Again, this is rather clear because the first word of verse 25 is the word husbands. He's addressing wives and husbands here. And as we read the two sections of the passage here, uh, we see rather plainly how the role of the wife corresponds to that of the church in marriage and how the role of husband corresponds to that of Christ in marriage. And as they live these roles out faithfully, again, we see something of the gospel, something of the relationship, the union between Christ and the church. First, Paul begins with a word to wives. He writes, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. And so, as you can imagine, this particular scripture text is somewhat controversial. Um, It's clear and plain that that Paul is giving instruction so that households function in a way, in such a way that husbands are the head of the home and that wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. It's rather clear. And so some have tried to kind of explain this away, these instructions away, by saying that that was for then and that time and place, but now we've, we've progressed and, and these instructions no longer apply because we live in a different culture and age. But as Christians who believe in the authority of the Bible, the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible, we cannot simply explain things away like that. And really, that's just simply not what the text says. It doesn't say that this is a a, a timely thing, but more so a timeless thing. This text roots male headship in the home and submission of the wife to her husband in the unchanging plan and purpose of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I think we get all fidgety, though, and, and uncomfortable with this text often because we don't have a biblical view of submission. 
We, we might be tempted to think that the submissive role is a subservient role or a lesser role or that it's oppressive. But that's not at all the biblical view of submission to authority. It's, submission to authority is an essential part of the Christian life. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, submission is an essential part of our life. We believe that children are supposed to submit to their parents. We believe that citizens are to submit to their governing authorities. We believe that employees should submit to their bosses and employers. We believe that um, members of a local church should submit to the leadership of that particular local church. And, and not only that, but as we see in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Ephesians here, if you want to take a look at that, verse 21 of chapter 5, right before we get into this section, members of a local congregation are actually exhorted to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is an important part of the Christian life. We all must learn how to submit in fact, as we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus, who shares equality with God, submits to him. In John 4.34, we see him say, my food is to do the will, the will of him who sent me. Not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Submission is preferring another's will over your own, uh, putting another's will before your own. He says, my food, what gives me life and energy is to submit to the will of my father. And then not only that, but in the Gospels, we see Jesus submit to his parents. We see Jesus submit to governing authorities. He who spoke the universe into existence and formed these structures and institutions in the first place submits to them. And so submitting is not like poo-poo for Christians. Submitting is not for those of lesser dignity or worth. Our Lord, our King is a prime example for what submission looks like. Submission is for everyone. But particularly, what does a wife's submission to her husband look like? Does it mean that a wife is supposed to, whenever her husband comes home, have his favorite sports game on, whatever that is, uh, have his pretzels and his beer waiting for him? Uh, not, not at all. It's, it's not a subservient role. The, the vision for headship and submission given by Paul here is not a call for slavery or subservience or a top-down chain of command. Rather, to submit here means to put another's will ahead of your own. Paul is simply calling wives to follow their husband's loving leadership in their marriage. He's calling wives to comply willingly with the leadership that their husbands provide. Rather than asserting dominance or being controlling in the home, wives are to are called to acknowledge the God-given role of the husband in the home and to respect the leadership that he provides for his family. You could think of it kind of like dancing, which is an odd illustration for me because I have like no experience with dancing. But nonetheless, it's like when a man and a woman dance together. The man, he's, he's the one who leads, and the woman in the dance responds to the leadership, the movements of the man as they dance together. The man is not domineering or, or overbearing, but he gently and firmly leads. And the woman is not passive or resigned, but she follows and she submits to his lead. And so it is with this vision of marriage. There's mutuality and cooperation, but the husband leads and the wife responds and follows and submits to his headship. And it's in this joyful and willing submission that a wife fulfills her role in her marriage of being a parable of the gospel. 
because in doing so, she's, she's a living illustration of what it looks like for the church to submit to Christ. So people can look at a marriage. Those who don't believe the gospel can look at a marriage and say, wow, that's, that's kind of what, what you're saying about how the church follows Jesus. And, and, and I can see that in your marriage as the husband leads and how the wife follows and submits to his leadership. Now, it's important to note here three common misconceptions for this call for submission. There are, I'm certain, more common misconceptions, but for those of us here this morning, I think there's probably three that we want to point out. First, it's important to note here that Paul doesn't say that the reason for male headship and wifely submission in the home is that the husband is better or more competent or more godly than the wife. Not at all. If you're a wife here this morning, you may very well be more competent and more godly than your husband. You may very well be more equipped to lead in your home mentally or emotionally or spiritually or in any other way. But the reason given here by Paul is not a man's competency. It's not even his godliness, even though he should strive with all his might to be godly. It's that marriage is a living parable of the gospel. That's your motivation. That's your reason for submission and male headship in the home. Second, it's also important to note here that Paul is not calling wives to follow their husband's lead into sin or into breaking the law or uh, that they must subject themselves to abuse by their husbands. You know, it's, it's incredibly unfortunate that I even have to say this, but, but I, I do because there are wicked and wretched men who have used this text to be domineering and abusive and to manipulate their wives. And that just makes me so angry. And that's just not something that this church will ever tolerate if it's seen. When verse 24 says that wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Paul is not saying that wives should follow their husbands into sin or breaking the law or, or put up with the horrors of abuse, but rather that they should submit to their husbands in every area of life, in things like financial decisions or uh, in things like discipleship in the home and church involvement and where they'll live and things like that. It doesn't mean that, that she's to put up with abuse or follow his leadership into sin. And we have a, a good example of the type of response wives should have in those situations in Acts 4. In Acts 4, we see John and Peter are told by their local governing authorities to not preach and teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And so, as Christians, we're obviously called to submit to governing authorities. That's obvious when you read in the New Testament. But, but here, they were calling them to disobey God. And so, Peter respectfully responds by saying, we must, we must obey God rather than men. And at times, a wife may need to respond in the same way in situations when her husband is asking her to sin or being abusive. Third, it's also important to note here that the call is for wives uh, to, I quote, submit to your own husbands. Um, and so this text is not calling for universal submission uh, of, of women to men. The text does not say women submit to men. Uh, and so for wives in here, you are not called by God to submit to someone else's husband, just your own. And likewise, ladies who are single, you are not called by God to submit to men in general. Uh, and, and this applies for dating as, as well. If you're dating a guy and he tells you that you need to submit to him citing this text, you need to tell him what's what. That's not what the text says. 
And single ladies, I, I, I beg of you too, if you are single and you're called by God to get married and you're going to pursue that in life, please keep this text in mind as you do. Realize that you are going to be marrying someone that you are called to submit to for the rest of your life. And so a very pointed application for you, don't marry an idiot. Don't marry, that's not a joke, don't marry a complete fool. Because if you marry a man who is a fool and makes foolish and stupid decisions, then you will be invited into the mess that he calls his life, and you will be called by God to submit to him for the rest of your life, and that will make you miserable. And so, as you're looking for a potential husband, make sure you spend enough time getting to know him, observing his life? Uh, Is he making disciples? Is he submitting to his church and making wise financial decisions and pursuing godliness? Introduce him to others in our church family. Ask what they think of him. Please, I beg of you, don't marry a fool. Marry the type of man that is worth submitting to. Marry the type of man that when you look at his life, when you look at his character, you would be glad to submit to a man like that. That's the type of man you should be looking for if you are looking to get married. And for men in the room, single or if you're already married, some pointed application for you, don't be a fool. Don't be foolish. Be the type of man worth submitting to. Are, are, are you fervently pursuing godliness? Are, are, are you submitting to others in the church out of reverence for Christ and to church leadership? Are you making disciples? Are you making wise life decisions? Are, are you in the pursuit of having the kind of character and competency which would cause a woman to look at you and say, yeah, I, I would be glad to submit to a man like that? Or if you're married, be the kind of man that your wife finds joy in submitting to and following your lead. Which brings us to the next part of the roles discussion. We see a word to husbands then. Here we see Paul's instructions for how the type of husband uh, is called to live for, for the, that makes it a joy for someone to submit to him. Uh, he goes on with his word to the husbands. He, he writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. And so if the main call in this text for wives in their pursuit of their marriages being a parable of the gospel is for them to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, the main call for husbands in this text in their pursuit of their marriages being a parable of the gospel is for them to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And so as we spend, as we spend some time unpacking the word submit and what that means for wives, We now turn to the portion of instructions that unpack what headship and leadership looks like for husbands. And to sum it up, in a word, it looks like love. Love. And as we unpack what the word love means, I I think we'll see that the weightier, more difficult calling lies on the husband's shoulders. Now, when we hear uh, that husbands are supposed to love their wives in this passage, there's probably a number of things that, that comes to mind for us. 
When you see that call here, you might picture a husband like planning just the best date night ever for his wife and coming home with like flowers from Second Street Market and like Esther Price candy and a love poem that he wrote for her, something like that. And then taking her out to Wheat Penny, get some pizza pie. I love the pizza pie there. And uh, then going out to like press to get some coffee or to Bill's to get a donut, and then they go home, and he like rubs her feet for hours, staring into her eyes and, and just whispering sweet nothings into her ear. That might be what you think, what you picture when you hear this call for a husband to love his wife. You might think of something like this everyday uh, version of the notebook, and every day is Valentine's Day sort of thing. And this text is actually sometimes taught like that. But as you read through the passage, you see that the call for a husband to exercise his headship by by loving his wife is actually much weightier and more compelling than that. Quickly, we see three descriptions of the kind of love a husband is called to here. First, a husband is called to sacrificial love. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so husbands, if if you want to know what kind of love you are called to love your wives with, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at Christ being crucified on a tree. Look at the way that he poured his life out till death and the way that he sacrificed himself in order to serve his bride, the church. So this means that that the kind of headship that a husband is called to exercise in the home is not the kind of headship wherein he is served but the kind of headship where he serves, where he puts his wife's needs before his own and serves her. It's the kind of headship where a husband puts his wife's needs and his wife's flourishing before his own needs and flourishing. Husbands, that that means that you count your wife as more significant than yourself. That, that means that you sacrifice your schedule and your ambitions and your hobbies and your energy and your prefer- preferences. And, and if it's necessary for you to do so, you even suffer in order to serve your wife. Husbands are called to sacrificial love. Second, a husband is called to sanctifying love. Sanctifying love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now listen, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So in other words, Christ gave himself up for his bride, the church, so that he might set her apart for himself by cleansing her through the word of the gospel. Now, it's not like a husband can perform the work of salvation for his wife. That's not what's being called for here. Christ and Christ alone does that. But, nonetheless, there's a very clear call here for husbands to serve and to love their wives in such a way that helps them grow in Christ-likeness. Husbands, you must be more concerned with your discipleship and growth of your wife than you are anyone else. She is your primary responsibility. It is a shame and a tragedy when husbands and fathers make disciples outside of the home but are not making disciples inside of their home. Do family worship at home, and we'll unpack how to do that in a couple weeks. 
Read the Bible and pray with your wife. Make sure that she's sharing life with others in our church and that she's devoted to the means of grace. Hold her accountable in her spiritual discipline. Care for her soul. One commentator asks the question, is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you or is she like Christ in spite of you? Is your wife more like Christ because she's married to you or is she like Christ in spite of you? Take time to examine yourself, examine your family this week to determine which one of those questions is more true of you. Make your wife's discipleship and growth in Christ your number one priority. Husbands are called to sanctifying love. And third, a husband is called to supportive love. So I just got super Baptist on you. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and supportive love. They'll all start with S. You can remember it very easily. Paul goes on to say, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Of course, it's, it's natural that we would care for our own body, provide for, nourish, cherish our own body, seek our own comfort. But Paul is saying that a husband here should view his wife in his oneness in such a way that just as he pursues those things for himself, he should pursue them for his wife. With the same strength and energy that he pursues his own nourishment and care, he should pursue the same for his wife. And the command to do so makes perfect sense in light of what we looked at earlier, that that a husband and wife are one flesh. When they become married, they are one flesh and are now, like Christ in the church, they're one. So husbands, consider your wives, support your wives, provide for her, know her, seek her, seek to understand her, spend time with her, cherish her. You are called to supportive love. Now as we close We need to remember that while we won't live this vision for marriage out perfectly, that the story of what the parable of marriage points us to is our only hope. The the gospel that marriage points us to is our only hope. Christ's love and work covers us when we've just completely blown it. And it can cover us no matter how bad we've blown it. We, as Christ's bride, are cleansed by him, are made spotless by him, are made unblemished by him and his work alone. So that no matter how bad we've blown it, there's cleansing, there's redemption, there is forgiveness. And then we also need to remember that Christ's love is what fuels our obedience for what's laid out for us in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. As we're daily renewed by his love, we're empowered then to make our marriages a parable of his love to the world. And while this particular passage has much, much to say to us about the practical and daily outworkings of our marriages, this passage should ultimately give us a sense of awe and wonder and amazement and gratitude and joy at the great love that Christ has for us that he would come, that he would suffer, that he would die so that we would be given to him in such an intimate union. This reveals to us a love greater than the mind can comprehend and greater than words could ever communicate. So let's close with the words of, of Charles Spurgeon, his sermon here on Christ's love to a spouse, where he just glories in the love of Christ. He says, this 
Love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. How often have I said to you that if I had heard that Christ pitied us, I could understand it. If I had heard that Christ had mercy upon us, I could comprehend it. But when it is written that he actually loves us, this is quite another and a much more extraordinary thing. Love between mortal and mortal is quite natural and comprehensible, but love between infinite God and us poor, sinful, finite creatures, though conceivable in one sense, is utterly inconceivable in another. Who can grasp such an idea? Who can fully understand it? Especially when it comes in this form, He, He, He loved me and gave Himself for me. This is the miracle of miracles. Amen. May this great love and power and compel our marriages to be living parables of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son, for creating the world so that your, fa- your son might find a spouse in us. And we thank you for the, the loving union that you have given us and presenting us to Christ so that we share with him all that we are and all that we have and then he shares with us all that he is and all that he has and we get to share in his righteousness and his kingdom and his sonship and his position before you and his inheritance. What a beautiful, weighty reality. And we recognize now that our marriages however wonderful they might be, will fall infinitely short of the glory and wonder of that loving relationship. But we ask that by your grace, we might, that they might be a picture of that. However small, however insignificant it might be, let, let them be a picture of that. And all of their imperfection and, and busyness and confusion and and craziness, would you help them to be a picture of that? Would you help us to live out the call here in Ephesians 5, to have our marriages be a parable, a living parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lord, and, and um, if, if we're struggling, if anyone in this room is struggling with, with the call here for submission or sacrificial, sanctifying, uh, and, and supporting love, would you just, would you give them grace? Would you give them rest in the gospel? Would you Uh, help them to to see um, how this is good news, how this is wonderful news, um, and that we get to be a part of that by by, uh, our marriages being a picture of that. Lord, um, would you help us now uh, as we prepare uh, to go from here, would you help us to be faithful uh, hearers and doers of the word? And would you help us now as we come to the supper to see See the picture that it is of, of, uh, of our union with Christ. That as we consume the bread and it goes into our bodies, as we consume the cup and it goes into our bodies, that this is a picture of our union with Jesus, that we are one with him. Lord, and, and would you help us um, to be encouraged by that, to be strengthened by that, to be given grace in that, sanctifying grace in that, so that we can then go out and live into this vision, this wonderful vision for marriage here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.